0: Our passage today is Psalm 130, I want to encourage you to turn there and let's stand as we read God's holy and inspired authoritative word, Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Lord, as we read your word and study your word today, as we apply it to our lives, Lord, help us to be teachable, help us to be ready to examine ourselves, to see where we are in this great fight in which you've placed us, this war of the spirit in which we are set in victory, and yet you have called us to go out. So, Lord, help us to have the confidence, the expectation that we see in the psalmist that you have forgiven our sins and that we wait upon you with expectation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Psalm 130, it's one of 15 songs of ascent that the Israels sang as they made their way up to Jerusalem to celebrate various festivals, particularly of Passover and of tabernacles. So these were the common songs that everyone knew. Psalm 130 was one of them. Some also call it a penitent psalm, one of seven in the book of Psalms, because it deals with confession and repentance. Ultimately, what it does is it shows the heart of a man or woman, what it looks like when he or she is broken over sin. And so our psalm begins on a desperate note. We're in the confession part, in the recognition of sin part, where the psalmist says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And you may remember from last week how I said that the sea or the ocean is a frequent metaphor in the Bible. It's one that refers to chaos and disorder. And that phrase, from the depths, is is used often when talking about the sea. And so we can see it here in Ezekiel 27, where God says to the nation of Tyre, Who is like Tyre, like one destroyed in the midst of the sea? When your waves came from the seas, you satisfied many peoples with your abundant wealth and merchandise. You enriched the kings of the earth. Now you are wrecked by the seas. In the depths of the waters, your merchandise and all your crew in your midst have sunk with you. Why does the psalmist describe himself as in the depths? Well, Psalm 69, that's also up there, helpful in that regard where we read, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck and I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. And so in Psalm 69 David equates persecution and affliction with being in deep water. And in Psalm 130, what we have is trials, maybe afflictions, maybe that might be part of the context. But the fact is that this is a psalm of confession and repentance. And so that suggests that the more likely case is that the depths of the sea are the consequences of his sin. And in that regard, I think of Jonah's prayer, right? Where he's uh, in literally the depths of the sea. And in Jonah 2, he cries out to the Lord, he says, out of my distress, very similar to Psalm 130. It says, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, right? Consequence of his rebellion, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me all your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. It's a pretty confident hope, right, that Jonah has in the midst of his circumstance. Yet I will look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. So, obviously, these are literal waters also, right, of the Mediterranean, yet they represent being cast away from God under his judgment, and the results are of his sin, Jonah's sin and rebellion. And that's probably what the psalmist is thinking here in Psalm 130. He's like Jonah praying from not the midst of the Mediterranean Ocean, but the midst of his own depths, right? Will God hear him? Can God's mercy reach so far as to rescue a man or a woman enslaved, dead to sin, who is suffering from lost peace and, and divided relationships in the sense of God's judgment? What's the answer? The answer is yes. Yes. And so verse 3 asks a very good question. If if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, which are sins, O Lord, who could stand? And that's a rhetorical question, obviously, because the psalmist is praying out to God. He believes, it implies, that God will show him mercy. But recognizing, however, that without the mercy of God, none could stand before him, that is important to the process of confession. Important to repentance. Years ago, I read a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon as an illustration in a book that I shared with a Colorado conference two weeks ago. It went like this. And some of you, years ago, you may remember this illustration. It's one of my favorites. Calvin's red wagon is racing along under a blue sky thanks to Hobbes the tiger, his imaginary friend who is pushing from behind. So Calvin is speaking over his shoulder. He says, It's true, Hobbes, that ignorance is bliss. Calvin steers straight towards this dark forest. He says, Once you start seeing things, you start seeing problems everywhere. And once you see problems, you feel like you ought to try to fix them. And and then the next frame is the, you know, Calvin and Hobbes now whizzing down a narrow path between trees, obviously, problems all around them. Hobbes has jumped on board. Calvin's steering like Mario Andre right in the, in the front, fixing problems, he says, always seems to require personal change. And change means doing things that aren't fun. Well, I say fooey to that. And so Hobbes' striped head barely misses the branch as they go down. Then suddenly the wagon clears the forest. And what's going on? Well, it shoots over the crest of the hill, right? And along with the wagon, you can see danger imminent. And then Calvin continues. But if you're purposefully ignorant, you don't know any better, so you can keep doing whatever you want, he yells. The secret to happiness is short-term self-interest. So then suddenly in the next to last frame, the, the red wagon you know it shoots out into space. Hobbes' eyes popping out of his head, Calvin tumbling through the air. We're headed for the cliff! But Calvin, as he's tumbling, he's covering his eyes, and he says, I don't want to know about it! <laughs> and next, there's a frame of, of sky. The boy's yelling, uh, why? Yeah, as, as you see in Calvin Hobbes, often and in the last frame, is Hobbes flattened on the ground, stars swirling over his head, and he says, I'm not sure I can handle so much bliss. <laughs> and nearby Calvin picking him up from himself up from the ground says, careful, we don't want to learn anything from this. So I think that, you know, I I love the illustration, Calvin and Hobbes, obviously named after John Calvin and, and Hobbes, the philosopher, if you're well aware, the, the artist often tried to build philosophy kind of real life common sense into his illustrations and made them funny but you know there's something true right there's something true about that whole scene sequence and that is driving us to ask the question am I in that red wagon have I been in that red wagon am I in that red wagon (laughs) Are we regularly convincing ourselves that if we purposefully don't take the time to think about the consequences of our sin, that somehow we won't be held responsible? Don't you often ride comfortably, supposedly, comfortably in the wagon, covering your eyes, ignoring the warning signs, riding in seeming bliss until the wagon crashes? For me, the wagon crashes when my wife or children often say, are you applying that sermon to your life too? In those moments, I often realize I'm not the only one picking myself up from a crash in the mud. I have passengers, right? I have passengers in the wagon. As the leader of my home, I have my wife and I have my children and, and how I react and respond to danger is important to not only me, but to to my entire family. And you may have been, you may be in that red wagon too. And Calvin, this momentary theologian, he says that ignorance is short-term self-interest. Paul calls it something better. and In Romans 6.12, he says it's letting sin reign in our bodies. How do we break free from that? Well, first you need to realize that ignorance is not bliss, and it's not an excuse. In allowing sin to master you, and I'm speaking to all of us, I'm speaking to men, women, children, young men, young women, you still must face the consequences of allowing sin to reign in your bodies. If you continue to act as a slave to sin, the wagon will crash. And at that point, there's no room for self-justification. There's no... There's no room either to say, be careful, I might learn something from this. Right? God expects that we are to examine ourselves, that we are not to let sin reign in our bodies. We are not to continue to engage in blame shifting and redirection and avoidance. Well, God has given us a very important practice, and it's revealed in our morning psalm. It's the practice of self-examination and confession. James 5.16 says that to confess our trespasses to one another is is the right thing to do so that we may be healed. 1 John 2.1 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And of course, in Psalm 130, the confession is primarily directed to God, but the Lord has also instructed us to confess to one another. And we need to realize that in this psalm, the the psalmist is a believer. He's still struggling, though, under the weight of the consequences of sin. If you think about David, in the psalms that we've looked at earlier in the year where he writes things like, my sin is ever before me. Or my bones have dried up and my body wastes away. The reality is that every believer sins before and after salvation, the difference is in those two time periods is this. As a non-Christian, you are described in the Bible as one whose only desire is to run from God, to exalt yourself. Even in your best actions, there's something that is self-glorifying in them, self-protective in them. There is no good in you, says the Bible. But when you were saved by the Lord, you were freed from the enslaving grasp of sin so that you now have the ability to obey God, and so you will now have two natures that war within you. You have the flesh, which is always corrupt, and the spirit, which is always pure. And you can submit to either nature, which Paul describes submitting to the flesh as letting sin reign in your body. In another place, he calls it sowing to the flesh. But submitting to the Spirit, on the other hand, is called walking in the Spirit. But unfortunately, like Paul, we all too often sow to the flesh. We do what we know we shouldn't do. And our old habits and our old ways still affect us and tempt us to act like before we were saved. And we need to remember that every sin grieves the Lord and to some degree affects our relationship with him. And it is for that very reason that he instructs us, confess your sins. Confess your sin so that his fatherly discipline of you can end. So that your life can return to holiness in all of its parts so that you can acknowledge that you have been sowing to the flesh and you don't have to. That that flesh was nailed, crucified to the cross with Christ. The enemy does not need to have the opportunity to afflict you, to control you, right? As Paul says in Romans 6.16, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey you are that slave that one slaves whom you obey whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness and then he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2:19 2, nevertheless the solid foundation of God stands having this seal the lord knows who are his let everyone who names the name of christ depart from sin But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, from dishonor, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful. Don't we want to be that? Prepared for every good work. But you say, aren't we no longer under sin, but under grace? And if that's true, why should we have to confess sin that's already been forgiven? Why do we need to feel like we're in the depths and confess to one another? And the answer is what I was just talking about, that while God has perfected you forever by the one offering that Christ made, if you are His, even though that is true, He is still in the process of making you holy. Holy. Justification is different from sanctification. In justification, you were acquitted. You were declared not guilty once for all before God for your sin. And in the language of Hebrews, because of Christ's sacrifice and representation, you are perfected forever. That's what the book of Hebrews says. That's good news. And God declared you not guilty. That's the assurance of your salvation. That's justification. But in sanctification, God spends your entire life refining you to become conformed to the image of his son. Anybody arrived yet? Everybody still has some impurities that need to be removed? You may possess Christ's nature, but you are not yet his perfect image. And so the model that we see in Psalm 130 and the rest of the Bible is examine yourselves. Recognize when you are in the depth of your sin. Confess and repent. And then we look again at verse 4, the pivot point of this psalm. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And maybe you expect the first part of that verse, but the last part seems illogical. God forgives so that he may be feared. Maybe you would expect that God forgives so that he may be loved or that he may be praised and worshipped. But so that he may be feared probably sounds odd there. And so it's good to stop and marinate on this verse. And I promise I won't spend as long as John Owen does in his work, A Practical Exposition Upon Psalm 130, in which he literally writes... 323 pages on verse four alone. So it won't spend that long. <laughs> How are forgiveness and fear connected, though? It's a good question. First, because of this verse, we have to say that the fruit of true forgiveness and new birth is fear of God. And of course, this is not a scared type of fear. We know that 1 John 4.18 says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has been, not been perfected in love, says John. And so we, we realize it's not that kind of fear, right? Forgiveness brings a removal of punishment. And so the psalm can't be referring to a fear that a prisoner, for example, feels as he awaits execution. Or that a soldier feels when he's captured by the enemy and there's, there's expected something, some kind of pain, some kind of retribution against him. That's the kind of fear that would result if we weren't forgiven. So what is the fear of verse 4? It's the fear of Hebrews 12.28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God as a consuming fire. And portraying God as a consuming fire reminds us of his power, of his righteousness, his justice, his wrath. And yet through forgiveness we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The result? Acceptable worship. With reverence and awe. Reverence and awe is what the psalmist means by fear. And interestingly, it is actually the result of forgiveness. Why? Well, 1 Peter 1 17 has the answer for that, where Peter says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And So what what is Peter saying there? He's saying that we should conduct ourselves with fear. There's, again, that theme, fear. Why? Because we know that we were ransomed. That's the forgiveness part. Not with earthly things, Peter says, but with the precious blood of Christ. What does that mean? It means that the cost of your forgiveness should sober you with regard to the full depravity and weight of your sin. It cost God everything, if you will, to redeem you from your sin. And that makes you both thankful, but also fearful, as you recognize that the cost was so great because God is so holy. Wow, that cost that much to redeem me? Because my sin is that great an offense against a holy, perfect, righteous, just God? Thank you. And wow, that's what is being meant here by verse 4 of Psalm 130. And of course, fearing God with the right kind of fear is a good thing because That is God's purpose in forgiving us. He wants us to be sober-minded. His purposes are good. He wants us to recognize the reality, the depravity of sin. He wants us to understand and acknowledge the holiness and perfection that He is. And He wants us to live and walk in the light of that truth. He forgives us so that we might revere or fear Him. Well, also think of what we learn in these passages here. Psalm 19.9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Proverbs 1.9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You see, it's not just about recognizing how he's holy. When we think about the depth of God's purposes for us, we recognize, well, wait a second, there's a lot that's connected to a right fear of God. It's the beginning of knowledge, It's the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. That's about health, life and health, right? You want want to know the true health, wealth, prosperity gospel? The fear of the Lord. That's the true health, wealth, prosperity gospel. Proverbs 16.6, by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. And those are all excellent things. Knowledge, clean, long life wisdom, being able to turn away, desiring to turn away from evil. That's what we want. And in Acts 9, we learn that the early church grew in joy and maturity because they walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I love how in Acts 9 that those two are put together. There's a fear of the Lord. But it's not the kind of thing where, you know, God is distant from us and we revere and awe of him, but he's just shining so brightly we can't even look at him. There's also the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Same sentence. Well, verse 4 of Psalm 130, as I said, is the pivot point. It's the point at which the psalmist moves from crying out to the Lord, calling upon God's mercy and forgiveness, and confessing his sin to. Repentance and then this expectant hope and repentance. In verses 5 through 6, brokenness over sin, acknowledgement of God's forgiveness leads to hope. I wait for the Lord, he says, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Now, I want you to look at this interesting. Passage from Lamentations three. It's the same chapter right before the, the section that we're all very familiar with, which "Great is thy faithfulness," right? And your mercies are new every morning. This is uh, where it starts here, and we read the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases; His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, and then it goes on. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. You forgot that part was there, right? <laughs> for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of a steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. I like this passage when we are thinking about verses 5 through 6 of Psalm 130, because the psalmist said, I wait on the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. And it's a great metaphor. It's it's the idea of watchmen at night, laboring all evening, waiting for the morning for a number of reasons. One, the sun rising and, and lighting up the day brought safety because the light reveals whatever's hidden in the shadows. And most of the time, the enemy doesn't attack a broad daylight. Second, it brings warmth out of the cold, Right? It's just something refreshing and new about, about the morning. And, and, and third, it signaled the reward of the end of a long night's labor. Well, the psalmist looks at that and he says, well, wait, my weight on the Lord is, is more dear than a watchman just waiting for the sun to rise. And by the way, the watchman had 100% certainty, faith, and hope that the sun was going to rise, right? It just just would. So he's waiting. That's the way our wait should be on the Lord, even more expectant than that 100% certainty of the watchman. And Lamentations 3 says, the Lord's love and mercies are new every morning. So that's part of what is being brought out by the sun rising. It's new mercies, new faithfulness. ...that's going to come today. But it also says... ...it is good for the soul to wait. That's a part that's... ...that's a little odd in this passage. The psalmist says he hopes in God's word... ...and the word contains God's promises... ...and the description of his character. Lamentations 3 speaks of both... God's love and character, the salvation of God, God's compassion and steadfast love. And the word repeated three times in verses 5 and 6 Psalm 130, wait, occurs here in Lamentations 3, where we find that the one who waits should wait quietly, that it's good for a young man to bear the yoke. Why? Why must we wait? And why so long? Well, first, part of God's salvific work in your life is to wean you off of the dependence that you have upon worldly things. Think about where you place your identity. Where, especially you young men, because we have the young men mentioned here and young women, where are you rooting your identity? Is it in the opinions of your peers? Is it in their acceptance? Is it in your possessions? Your intelligence, your looks, what is it? What do you spend most of your time thinking about, wanting to do? Well, God wants to wean you off of all of these temporary, shallow, superficial things. Because in in the end, they lead to true pain and suffering. It doesn't seem like it at first. They promise, on a shallow level, pleasure. Pleasure and attention, a reputation, and acceptance, and affirmation. But God says, it is good for you to bear the yoke, for me to wean you from these things, because that short-term pain, not short-term pleasure, but the short-term pain, ends in something that you do like. It ends in hope. It ends in endurance. It ends in glory. It ends in joy. God promises that in the midst of that, this is, that's, this is where the greatest thy faithfulness, where the, your mercies are new every morning, this is where it all comes in. It's because God knows that we are in the midst of, not just trial, but we are in the midst of his purposeful waiting to come to our rescue. God knows that we are in the midst of that self-sacrifice to follow him and walk down the narrow path. And so he says, I know it. And I want you to remember two things, my steadfast love and compassion. That's the first thing. And the second thing I want you to know is my mercies are new every morning. My strength is new every morning. You can do it. You can make it. And so he he promises that. He promises that he is with us and walks alongside of us. All right? As I said, the early church walked in the comfort of the Spirit. He's called the Paracletus, the one who walks alongside of his people. He promises that he supplies us what we need. He nourishes us through the weekly participation, in the Lord's Supper, and the fellowship of the saints. The promises of his word, and that waiting will come to an end. And at the end is glory and a reward of righteousness. And I'm reminded how Paul puts suffering and comfort alongside one another in Romans 8.36 where he says, for your sake we are killed all day long. Here's a guy that needed mercies and strength that were new every morning. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And yet, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Right? Right? More than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, nothing, I just put it in a big word, all capital letters, nothing. Because that's what all this summary is. Neither death, life, angels, principalities, powers, things present or things to come, height, depth, any other created thing, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is a great promise and a great hope. And then Isaiah 30, verse 15, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Remember what Lamentations 3? It is good that you wait in quiet. Expectation, like the watchman waiting for the morning. But you were unwilling, he says. You said, No, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. You said, we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord waits. So kind of put a pause there in that passage, right? Right? He's talking to people that he says, it's good to wait, but you don't want it. You don't like the pain. It's good to wait, but you fear, but you don't trust me. So you you are, it's like you fear at the, the very sound like a mouse, right? And you're running, scurrying away. You try to flee on your horses. You trust in chariots and other things go ahead. You do that and find out what the results are. But for those who will wait, he says, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice and blessed are all those who wait for him. What I'm seeing here in, in kind of the themes coming out of Psalm 131 is we, we have to examine ourselves and we can't be like Calvin in the wagon. We can't look at, short-term self-interest and, and ignore our sin. But second, we need to be patient. We need to wait upon God because in our trust in him and our knowledge that he has forgiven us, we also acknowledge that he is a God of compassion. He is a God of steadfast love. He is a God who has his own purposes that result in our best good. And so we are patient like the watchman waiting for the morning. The morning has not come yet, but It will. It will. Well, finally, we arrive at the high point of the psalm in verses 7 through 8. Four, as a conclusion, why am I waiting? For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I think one of the struggles of the Christian is to believe, especially in the midst of that wait, that God's mercy is strong enough and his strength sufficient enough To rescue us from our troubles, especially our sin. And there are two phrases in that section that stand out particularly strong to me. One is steadfast love, which is repeated so often in the Psalms. And the second is plentiful redemption. I like that phrase. Plentiful redemption. You see, God as a Father doesn't just offer you redemption, that would have been enough. And given the reality of the depravity of sin as we talked about earlier, that would definitely be enough as we understood that. But God doesn't just want in his faithful, covenantal, fatherly love to give you redemption. He wants to give you plentiful redemption. Just like Jesus said, I have not just come to give you life, I have come to give you abundant life, right? Overflowing life. Psalm 130 was one of Martin Luther's four favorite psalms. It said that the church father, Augustine, had Psalm 130's words inscribed on the wall in his bedroom where he lay dying so that he might memorize them and look at them as he was was there on his bed. He awaited the abundant redemption that God promised. Even as he suffered pain, even as he waited for the dawn, if you will. The question is, do you wait upon God? Are you looking forward to that plentiful redemption? Would you describe yourself as examining yourself? Would you describe yourself as as expectant and waiting like a watchman? I'm so glad that the Bible does not teach, blot out my transgressions according to the zeal with which I confess them. You see, the good news is that victory is assured. God will redeem his people from their sins. And his salvation is based upon his steadfast love and his purposes. And Jesus Christ is our high priest forever. He's still praying for you today, right at this moment. The way he did for Peter. Remember how he told Peter, Simon, God, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, so that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It's a great verse. And I think it's it's what he would say to us today. Peter, you're going to fail. (laughs) And you're going to fail miserably. Each of you, as well as me, we will fail miserably. But Jesus is praying. Satan, the world, the things that demand your attention, things that offer you that short-term pleasure, they are praying to sift you like wheat, to make you ineffective, to destroy you. But Jesus has said, I will pray to you. And when you have overcome, when you've confessed and repented, Strengthen your brothers. Don't leave that part out either. We are, after all, a community, a family, are we not? And we need to be investing in one another with that reality, even as was read in Galatians and some of the other passages at the beginning of the service, that we are, all of us, in the same boat. We are struggling the same And you are never alone, no matter how deep or dark the depths. For God has affirmed his covenant to those who are his children by an immutable oath, says the Bible. And that's why Paul can say, we overwhelmingly conquer. And so, friends, I want to close with this reminder, this affirmation, really this benediction. It's found in Jude. You know this one, but it's a good one because it's appropriate today. Jude 24 through 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. May the Lord bless you as you wait upon him and hope for his salvation. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your great forgiveness. We thank you that we can examine ourselves, that you call us to not dwell in ignorance, to not be distracted by the world, but to f- examine ourselves, to be willing to confess our sin, to begin to wait upon you in your right timing, it may not be in our confession, immediately absolve us from our the consequences of sin. We still may be facing trials, afflictions, maybe the direct results of what our sin brought upon us or our families. But Lord, you have said that your mercies are new every morning. Your strength is there for us. You are for us. And so, Lord, we wait upon you. For we know that in your fatherly love, you wait to show us mercy. You delight to give us a plentiful redemption. Help us to remember that. Help us to remember that Jesus is even now praying for us. The Spirit is even now filling us, walking beside us, working in us. Lord, may that produce in us thankfulness and awe.